0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to yet another episode of the consulting podcast. Today, we have a very special guest from Vaxo, Sweden, Dr. Sonia Bilod. Ma'am is a professor at Linus University, Sweden, and she teaches the area of marketing, international business, and consumer behavior at graduate and postgraduate level courses in the School of Business and Economics. She's a stint sabbatical fellow at Arizona State University. She's also a member of Indian Lenius Academy collaboration. She's written various papers published in well-renowned journals. And to just name a few, she's written uh, a paper on internationalization of SMEs and market orientation, the Indian Patola, import and consumerism in early modern Indonesia, enriching cultural experience from rural tourism. Moving on, ma'am has re- also written a book on research on cultural encounters and representation at Linus University, Sweden. She's traveled far and wide with imparting knowledge. And today, we are very much pleased to invite her here with us. She'll be talking with us on the topic of understanding impact of COVID-19 on consumer behavior. Thank you so much, (laughs) ma'am, for joining and accepting our invitation. Uh, Before we proceed any further, we would just invite you for uh, a small brief introduction about your career path from you. Over to you, ma'am.
1: Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Team Consult. Uh, Thank you, Banshi, for this wonderful um, introduction. And first of all, a big thank you to the team consult for inviting me. I, I feel really honored. I feel so happy to be part of this group here and uh, to be able to share some of uh, my insights um, on, on research and, and, uh, and academia regarding the topic that you mentioned. Um, <clears throat> I think uh, you were interested in knowing about my career path. Well, I think it has really very uh, humble beginnings in that sense. Um, I was born and brought up in India, and um, I did my MBA from Bharatatpala University in Bhopal. Uh, And then uh, I moved to Indore, which is my uh, hometown. And uh, after my uh, uh, post graduation, I was working at a management institute, a local management institute in Indore. Uh, Soon after, I got selected as a research associate at uh, IIM Indore. So uh, so while the small institute, the Swatijan Institute gave me an insight into how teaching really happens because I had never taught before that. So that was my grounding training there. So I attribute my initial training in teaching to them, but uh, the, the whole insight about uh, taking a particular field as a research field and doing really something um, insightful with it and, and trying to be curious and, and trying to find out and using different methodologies is something that I would definitely attribute to IIM Indore because it, it, in, it, it ingrained in me the, the curiosity to, to do something with whatever I read and trying to make connections between different episodes that happen around us and try to make some sense of the whole picture uh, that emerges out of this connection. Uh, and then, um, so so over that time, uh, then I applied uh, for a scholarship uh, that was from Japan, and I was a very avid reader of the employment newspaper. Uh, I'm I'm not sure how many of you read it or know about it, but if if it is a, a, if it is a still existing gazette. I would actually recommend all of you to, to keep having a look in it because it, it posts great information about all the selection criteria and all the selection exams uh, from different departments and um, <clears throat> institutions all across India. Anyway, so I was also reading it fervently, uh, keeping a close eye. And then I saw this announcement of a scholarship from Japan and they were offering uh, a scholarship to do higher studies, PhD studies in, in, uh, in their country. And it was, I think, extremely competitive because they were, it it was a global competition and they were selecting about 10, uh, about between eight and 10 people per country, uh, one across 13 disciplines. So basically, if I was applying for a PhD scholarship for business and management, I would be, if selected, the only person in the country to to get that scholarship for, for that academic year. And I didn't really keep very high hopes because I was like, wow, this is a huge scholarship. And, but my family and everybody was like, no, you just keep working hard. You just try to, you know, be persistent, be consistent uh, and uh, just just go on it. Let's see what happens. So don't worry about the, the fruit. Let, let's just put a consistent and committed effort here. And I think I was a good girl. I listened to them <laughs> and, I, and I kept my efforts on. And I think that's where the story changed. Um, I remember when we had gone to the interview, it was a huge uh, place. Uh, it was happening at the Dhyanshan Stadium in Delhi. And only for that first round of the interview, if I remember correctly, there were about five or 7,000 people. And for me, that was overwhelming. Um, but I just said, okay, let's dekne, let, let's see what happens. And I went on and I, slowly all these scholarship rounds were um, completed and um, in October 2004, I found myself in Japan, a completely alien culture, a completely different you know, set of people. Uh, and that's when I realized that the world is much more than what we see from our doors and windows. And one needs to appreciate, one needs to be prepared Uh, in order to able to absorb that, in order to able to accept that and go with the flow. Uh, And I think Japan, I would say, not only gave me my PhD, but it also gave me a huge insight into culture as a domain uh, of investigation, of exploration, of understanding. I think that experience made me a completely different person in the sense of leaving behind my ethnocentrism leaving behind, you know, like what we know as, okay, my culture is the best and that is the only culture I should believe in. Uh, But it gave me a new insight into all of that, that I may love what I have, I may love my roots and that is very good, but I should also respect other roots and I should also respect other beliefs and other traditions. There is no reason for me to nullify somebody else because I love mine the most. These are two separate things and they have to be taken like so. Uh, So then that started my seven year journey in in, uh, Japan, in Tokyo, uh, during which uh, I finished my PhD in four and a half years. And then I was teaching at an American university in Tokyo uh, over all that time. So overall the stay was about seven, seven and a half years. Uh, But then after that, we were hit by the tsunami and earthquake in 2011, which completely disrupted Japanese life the Fukushima nuclear disaster and all those things. And um, we had to, I would say had to, because I was in no way mentally prepared to leave Japan. Japan had become my second home, Uh, but we had to leave that and and come back to India. We stayed there for another one and a half years or so. And during this time, I was again applying to different institutions within the country as well as abroad. And then I got headhunted uh, to join uh, Linnaeus University in Sweden. Uh, and that's how my, uh, my whole migration story to Sweden began with my kids and my um, first with my kids, because my husband was already working in India, and we decided to take not take the risk of moving everything there. So we did it in parts. Uh, and um, that's how I, I came here in uh, 2013. And my husband joined us two, three years later. And that's how we finally moved to Sweden. And now I have been here since then. Uh, Working mainly in the field of consumer behavior, cultural consumption, uh, and um, international marketing and business innovation. Uh, Since 2015, I have uh, headed the uh, master's program in innovation. I'm the program director, and uh, it's a multi-faculty program involving business, engineering, and design students. Uh, And we do a lot of uh, stakeholder uh, projects with uh, local and multinational companies, uh, communes, I mean the municipalities, uh, towards um, innovative solutions for local as well as global issues. So yeah, and Mansi has already said that I have had the luck and um, the blessings for getting published in some really good journals, A-ranked and B-ranked journals, uh, book chapters, and um, I have hosted, I have been invited as expert speaker in webinars. Uh, So yeah, overall it's been, yes, uh, um, I I like my story, (laughs) actually. (laughs) It's been really interesting, yeah. yeah. So uh, that is about me, but what I would like to do in the future is really take this whole cultural component ahead. And whenever I meet students, institutions, groups, organizations, I I kind of try to actively propagate that field of research. Uh, I'm a constant uh, invitee for students and groups who are um, interested in doing more with um, culture. And if you know the Sustainable Development Goals uh, 2030, you will also know that culture has been identified as the fourth pillar. Uh, for sustainability. Initially, it was three pillars, uh, which was more based on economics and and infrastructure and and health, but now culture is also included. Uh, And one of my latest publications has been in the journal called Sustainability. Uh, They have a special issue called Culture, the fourth pillar in sustainability. And I have uh, written about um, culture-based inclusions, cultural heritage, and citizen engagement. So um, I'm, I'm open to anybody who wants to collaborate and, and we can do some really wonderful things together.
0: Yes, so that is all about me, I think. Thank you so much, ma'am. And uh, to say the very least, you have given us a, a lot of existential crisis. And <laughs> not just me, I'm pretty sure that all of us sitting here would be wondering the same thing. And uh, in such short time, you have achieved so much that we just dream of. So, but yeah, <laughs> let me take a moment. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank again. you, thank you so much, thank you. Yeah. So uh, moving ahead, uh, we have few questions for you. And absolutely. Uh, uh, first question would be, how do you think the consumer market is reacting to the pandemic? Mm-hmm. What is um, your take on it?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I would say it more from um, the, the country context that I am in right now in, in Sweden. Um, and the Scandinavian part of the world. Uh, I can't really say much about India per se, apart from the fact that I have read uh, from newspapers and and talking with my relatives and friends back home. Uh, And that has actually helped me to to be more curious. Uh, And I did some research on that and I will talk about those papers later on. But essentially I would say that, It has been both tragic as well as a new learning experience in terms of that, while it helped us identify some lacunas, some gaps, and some realizations that we had never thought about, the directions that we had never thought about, it also opened so many new opportunities. And it has actually made the people more resilient. It has made the people more brave, more daring more innovative, more open-minded, and more and more new things are happening that otherwise would have taken a lot of time in in a normal curve. But this has kind of accelerated the whole thing. Um, And in that sense, I would say the consumers have shown a great amount of agility. I mean, if you see how people have moved across various domains of consumption, whether it is Uh, very rational decision making, or even abstract decision making, Uh, people have taken a moment to sit, think whether they really need some stuff and go ahead. Or on the other hand, if there have been new models presented to them, they have quickly adapted to it, which is amazing in the sense of how quickly a consumer can really learn. So in that sense, I would feel, I would say that the the, the pandemic, the experience around the pandemic has been very um, insightful uh, in that sense. Speaking of Scandinavia in particularly, or in in Sweden particularly, things have been a bit different here. Uh, While uh, a country like, like India or many other countries, I would say, have experienced lockdowns, and economic crises because of the lockdowns and and uh, extremely um, strict uh, regulations from the from the municipalities or the governments regarding how they should behave. Um, Sweden has, in that sense, really been a little lenient or or liberal. We haven't ever since the start of the pandemic. We have never experienced a lockdown in that sense. Uh, there was never a curfew. Uh, the people were never from regulation forced to wear a mask or, or uh, you know, take those kind of uh, measures. Everything has been pretty recommended. It is recommended to wear a mask. It is recommended to stay home. There have been some regulations, like no more than eight people can convene, or or um, uh, the the, the, um, the movie theaters were closed down. Sometimes the schools closed down. But everything has been very contextual. It has never been a permanent thing or it has never been like a curfew or a lockdown or anything like that. So people here actually did not have the same experience of a pandemic like others or other people in other countries did. Which meant actually two things. One, we were kind of outliers in the sense of how we experienced the pandemic. And second, I would underline that the government here has been extremely brave in that sense because they have tried to empower the citizens and the consumers with a sense of extreme responsibility. So it's very organic in that sense because if the people understand what they should do and what they should not do, and it comes from within, then I think the system has a more better control. On the context or on the on the chaotic situation, rather than having rules and regulations being imposed on them all that time. So, in that sense, I would say Sweden has had a very different direction um, regarding consumers. Um, what we feel here is that, well, for all this time, I have never for a day experienced any kind of panic buying. Nobody was panicking. Nobody was panic buying like we saw stories across, you know, other countries like um, India or China or, or the U.S. I mean, U.S. in that sense was really a horror story. if I The people were buying toilet paper and pasta and sugar and candies. And if you like crazy, if you see how Costco, for example, was selling its stuff. Uh, we have never had that kind of a scenario in, in, in Sweden. Stores were running calmly. There were regulations, the distance and all of that. Sometimes you would see that some shelves were empty, for example, toilet paper or, or you know, typical things, salt, sugar, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. But it never created a panic. People were ready to wait. People were ready to plan. And people were ready to even share their resources if it came to that uh, extent. So my exposure to to the pandemic and to consumer behavior in that sense has been kind of much, kind of different in that sense. Uh, but I would actually say that there's it, it speaks of a different uh, way of um, of handling humanity, of of handling people, uh, making them more aware, making them more responsible in that sense, uh, and, and trying to put the control in their hands uh, gives a different output, I would say. Mm. Yeah, that would be my insight on how consumer behavior has manifested differently in different parts of the world.
0: Definitely, ma'am. Uh, okay. I think we'll all agree that there was a different type of scenarios. And as you stated, uh, we have got a new perspective on how things were different in mm. different countries. Mm. So thank you so much for sharing that with us, ma'am. Mm. Uh, Moving on, uh, as the COVID-19 pandemic has seen a shift in consumer behavior by people using Mm. more of our digital platforms now. Mm. So Mm. how do you feel about this change? And how do you think it is impacting on the retail stores, shopping Mm. experience in the future ahead? So Mm. what is your take on that?
1: Yeah, Um, I think we haven't still come to the end of the tunnel. So there are still so many new things that will happen and that will be planned to happen uh, in the near future. But from whatever experiences we have, I think uh, even if I am uh, I'm looking at the recent scenario now, uh, and, and my focus has not been in all uh, the whole domain of the retail industry, but I saw some examples. Um, in India, I saw that there has been a big change in the way food delivery channels have opened up. Uh, uh i mean especially online or o- online retailer stores uh and and this whole shift of how people have started adapting uh, themselves to online shopping um and and, and uh, online retail merchandise purchase i think has been a, a shift in that sense I, I i i don't know if it was a big shift because uh, already the youngsters were were used to a lot of online shopping. But the shift came for the elderly people, I think. And in one of the papers that me and my friend, uh, my colleague from Iran did, because we thought we wanted to look at this from the elderly perspective. So we did a study, and I can send you the link later on uh, for you to read. We did a study where we compared behavioral transformation among the elderly people And we took uh, our our sample was from Iran and India. Um, And we specifically looked at how the elderly behaved and how they adapted to this whole situation of being in a context where they were kind of socially isolated and they were kind of left on their own to deal with life. And we saw a huge shift in the way they became comfortable with online shopping. So I would actually say that for more and more Uh, success in that direction, the retailers, whether it be the big retailers or the small Kirana stores um, in our towns, that that shift has been very much prominent. How to listen to these consumers, how to understand what they need. Uh, And from some of my own personal experiences, the smaller retailer stores have been extremely smart in that sense they have created their whole belt of loyal consumers, calling people, asking them if you need something, giving them special services and discounts, making sure that the elderly uh, are uh, are able to order, are able to receive, and everything being very properly packed and sanitized and stuff like that. I think the the small kirana, as a model, the small mom and pop stores have been very smart in, in that aspect. So that is one thing that that was in my observation. The other thing that I observed again, through a paper of mine, um, but in a different context in Japan was regarding the service industries, especially in terms of uh, tourism. And uh, the paper that we did, we explored a number of uh, uh, service outlets, hotels, hospitality industries, and we saw how they converted a lot of their services to digital experiences. Japan, for that matter, has a has a very unique or nuanced tourism sector, and that is called the onsen sector or the or the uh, hot spring sector. Uh, Japan, as a country, has a lot of hot springs, uh, which are used for medical purposes because the water comes from um, an earthquake-infested and volcano-infested country which means that some parts of the country have a very uh, special or a unique uh, combination of soil and silt and minerals. And when there is a hot spring in that area, that particular combination of soil and silt and minerals creates a certain water quality that is supposed to be medicinal, that is supposed to be healing and therapeutic. And a lot of tourism in Japan is around that whole onsen or hot spring belt. Uh, but you can't now bring the hot springs into homes. However, people still want to enjoy that. So what these onsens did was actually convert those experiences into digital experiences. Can you believe that? How, how do I convert a hot spring experience to a digital experience? Through photography, through 3D modeling, through uh, artificial intelligence, through some level of robotics and through special packaging of their goods and services the whole transformation from actual physical experience of being in a hot spring was converted into a digital experience. Uh, And I can send you that, that paper as well because I think that whole transformation was extremely innovative, was extremely creative, and it could not have happened without the collaboration of local and national stakeholders and what they creatively did here is not just the stakeholders i mean not just the governance and the, the onsen or the hot springs but they actually also involved the consumer by asking them how do you how would you like this experience to be delivered to you how, how 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 can your feedback help us to improve the digital experience that we are trying to give you and their feedback and their criticism and their opinions and their collaborative work So it completely has, to some extent, uh, changed uh, the service delivery of uh, tourism sector. And it has created a completely new digital channel for how something that is sensory, something that is meant to relax uh, the senses, can be converted into a digital platform uh, and still be served to the consumer as, uh, as an effective way of, of um, providing services. So uh, my point here is to say again, coming back to what I was saying before, that a lot of things are happening now, innovatively, co-creatively, collaboratively, with the consensus of all kinds of stakeholders involved. And there are so many possibilities then therefore that lie in, in, in the pipeline. And as I said, we are still not at the end of the tunnel. So there are still new and more and more creative things that can happen. So it's just an exciting time ahead um, and consumers are just lapping it up. I think the, the, they are not hesitant to try new stuff, which is great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is what I would say
0: about consumers. It's, it's a great learning experience for everybody. Definitely, ma'am. And uh, I request you to send us those links if possible. So absolutely. I'm pretty sure that all of us would be interested in that.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And again, coming back to my, my point of iteration, when you read those papers, if you see something happening around you, uh, let's work on it. I mean, the world needs to know more and more of these the insights. The world needs to know how creative different people can be in different parts of the world. And there are a lot of journals, a lot of periodicals these days that are only waiting for such insightful stories to be published. So keep your eyes open around you, keep your ears and nose open around you and see what's happening. This is the perfect time to learn.
0: Most definitely, ma'am. Thank you so much, ma'am. 2020 was full of buzzwords like lockdown, quarantine, pandemic. One among them was a digital disparity. From a customer Uh point of view, we slightly changed the terminology to data disparity. Uh Now, giant retail companies, especially e-commerce ones, have access to enormous data to their customers and visitors, which help them to innovate and provide better services. Uh However, these small retail stores uh, can't have the access to that data. How can they understand the behavior of the customer and visitor in a better way in the evolving technology platforms?
1: Uh I don't really have an answer to that, but I think I gave you some indications in my previous discussion here. Uh, But actually, you know, this this very question that you asked me is very interesting because it has actually opened up a door for me to do research on. (laughs) I would like to know really how the Kirana stores have been smart enough in order to adapt their business models and reach a wider consumer belt. Uh, From my personal experience and from the stories I hear, as I said before, the, Kirana, the, the small town Kirana stores have been very smart. And, and I would say that, I mean, I'm happy to see that the smartness comes in terms of, in, in times of chaos, because that is an indication of the resilience, of, of the uh, independence um, and of the um, general smartness, I think that uh, uh, small entrepreneurs, uh, small sized and small and medium sized entrepreneurs have shown in this time of crisis. Um, I'm sure there are, of course, some who were unfortunate and uh, who had to close stores, who had to close their businesses or at least suspend it for some time. And that things have definitely happened. But uh, in, uh, from, from, from what I hear, from the cases that I hear, uh, things have been in control. And actually, there, there's another colleague, there's another friend of mine from Bangalore and she told me that in their area the people now again it comes back to the citizens and how the citizens were you know uh, empowered there or or they felt responsible the citizens decided that they are going to buy only from the local stores when everything was normal whenever in the normal times there were consumers who would go across town for discounts or rebates or you know uh, instead of buying from the small Kirana store, let me go to this huge wholesale store because I get some discount, etc., etc. But there have been instances to my knowledge where local people said, okay, we are not going anywhere. Even if the huge wholesale stores have online uh, possibilities, ordering possibilities, we are not going to order online because there is this Kirana store in front of my house that needs to survive. So come what may, I'm going to buy only from him or her. And I think that's amazing. That's amazing how people think, not just for their own, you know, small marginal profit uh, there, but uh, also for the survival of the people around them. So I think in the COVID pandemic, it has been to some extent a two-way relationship. It's not just that the, the retailers were trying to be smart and trying to be a little more in contact with their consumers and trying to, you know, keep their their sustainability up, but it's also the consumers who should be applauded for for their decision making to help these people survive. Uh, but as I said before, that that's going to be my next step. I would really, really love to see how the small um, mom and pop stores across the country have survived and what kind of innovative things they did. So,
0: um, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> yes, ma'am, <Maybe>. definitely. <laughs> with Team Consult. <laughs> definitely, ma'am. We'll be very much thrilled to do the same. And I think all of our students will be interested. And we'll definitely get back to you on that. Absolutely. and uh, please take a Absolutely. note. Yeah. <laughs> we have a lot of things to do now. Yeah, definitely we will. <laughs> definitely. So, uh, moving on, ma'am. Uh, ma'am, it, uh, to be very honest, it's very interesting so far. It feels like we're having a one-to-one conversation with you. So... It uh, you, definitely man. the online platform it's a has great been a... <clears> there. <throat> definitely, ma'am. So, moving on, uh, ma'am, what is your take on whether the cons- consu- consumption switch at haste will be a cost effective mm. one or not? Mm-hmm. Nowadays, consumers want any retailer to use an omni channel. Is it really feasible for every retailer to use this uh, channel of communication?
1: I think that's a difficult question, and, and I'm really not equipped to answer that because, as I said, one, we aren't in awareness of the whole situation. It hasn't really unfolded, and people are still at their at their cost sheets and their accounting sheets to see what sense did the, this whole thing make. Uh, and we don't really have the full figures in terms of investments done in order to change something quickly. Um, but, uh, so so yeah, it's difficult really to say at this point, whether it has been a good investment or a bad investment, or is it just a break even or how business models have thrived. Um, but when you speak about consumption switched haste, uh, there's yet another paper that we did on the FinTech situation uh, in low-income customers in India. And I can refer to some of the findings that we found uh, in, in that paper. Uh, and um, since we just talked about the small and medium-sized retailers, uh, a question before, uh, I, I think it's, it's good to talk about that paper here, because in my study, the sample, uh, the respondents were the small and medium-sized retailers. And uh, we uh, saw that uh, from a general interview that we had with a, with a sizable amount of sample there, we saw them clearly pointing out that consumers, have switched to FinTech uh, as as one of the most promising uh, ways of doing business uh, in in the pandemic times. Uh, Now, there were various reasons for it. One, that um, a lot of the banking institutions and a lot of other institutions had moved to online payment and and, and online um, transactions, really. fintech was already there and people knew something about it, but it was not used as the main mode of doing transactions. However, when the pandemic stuck, the fear, the anxiety around going to banks and doing uh, banking transactions was kind of getting more and more impossible to do. Second, there were also information around the handling of cash. And, and the possibility of getting, getting infected due to the handling of cash uh, and banking notes. So again, that was something that, that kept, kept people a bit wary about whether to do these things or not. And increasingly, more and more number of consumers, more and more number of retailers made sure that FinTech, whether it was um, Paytm and, and other such similar devices and other such similar tools, were being used by, uh, by the consumers, by the retailers. And uh, in our study that we did, uh, we basically used um, the model of um, uh, the, the, uh, the antecedents to behavioral change. Uh, and when we ex- uh, uh, investigated constructs like awareness of the new context and the new services or trust in FinTech services, and fear of the context and social influence to to do this and its intention on using fintech services by the respondents, we saw that there was a lot of positivity around there. Uh, More and more people were having an increased affinity and intention to use fintech services. And the amazing thing was that this happened very fast. Uh, and therefore we, we identified it as consumption behaviors which at haste, because people had no choice but to change. But this very change, that moment of change from one portal to another, because of fear, because of anxiety, because of the fact that they didn't want to fall into this whole chaos of, of the pandemic personally, or for their families meant that a lot of agility embedded agility exists in consumers and in the retailers, even at the small level. And and companies just need to understand therefore uh, how to use this embedded agility and and use it or leverage that existing embedded agility for their business model advantage. So, So it's going to be like, okay, something already exists. Now I just need to make my business model more communicable, more transparent, more clear. And my communication has to be in such a way that I'm able to invoke more loyalty and trust among my new or prospective consumer belt. And that I think would be key relationship factors between um, service providers and consumers. Uh, and, And this particular study that we did was among low income customers. Uh, and when we looked at their educational profile, it was not that they had very high education. I mean, uh, uh, I think the maximum of our customers that we interview, uh, that we uh, send a survey to uh, were high school graduates or, or uh, undergraduates from university. And, and they were working part-time or they were working full-time and they were manual laborers some of them were you know in the lower um, uh, income group uh, uh, salaried uh, workers so it was not a very high profile or highly educated or highly earning salaried people that we were asking these were by definition identified as people from the low income group but to see such kind of agility even within the low income group was amazing as a result of that uh, of this whole pandemic uh, and chaotic situation uh, that uh, the country um, uh, faced uh, that, that happened in India. And I think that is very promising. Um, not only does it, does it show the kind of agility that's existing in the society, but it also shows that the society per se is prepared. That you just need to now be able to talk to them in the manner that they best understand uh and 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 ensure that they have a, a a loyal relationship that they that you are able to to commit to the kind of trust that uh, that they want uh from you as a service provider so i think there is great promise in what can be done with uh, such uh, changes uh, in the system
0: hmm? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you've been very patient with us and we just have one last question with you before we okay. conclude the session. Yeah. So, uh, the road ahead and what do you think, The how should the financial sector be prepared with the changing and evolving consumer market? How should the uh, financial sector be prepared with it?
1: Mm. I think I, I already answered that in that sense that um, uh, the, the, the banking sector, the financial sector uh, could for one way Um, uh, leverage the existing ability, the existing adaptability and the existing acceptance for for new technology and new services Mm. that seems to be present in in the society and and, in the customers. Another, Another contribution that the financial sector can make is to actually help people improve their understanding. A lot of hesitance and resistance to change happens because people are unsure. And the whole context of maturity comes because people are not really literate in that sense. They don't understand the complexities of financial instruments, or they don't understand the complexities of financial transaction digital models. But if, the, if, if such kind of uh, business sectors help to improve customer literacy and trust, then I think that can really make um, you know a, a big change in how people Uh, develop a positive inclination to product adoption. And most importantly, it is not just creating that positive inclination, but it's also a question of sustaining that inclination. Any business model can be effective only when there is a certain amount of elevated sustainability in it. It's not a fashion. People might choose to change, but then they might come back to their roots. It's not wrong. I mean, there are industries of different kinds that are surviving and they need to survive. However, for any investments that, that these companies do or or the financial sector does to change the system, it can survive only if it is sustained. Therefore, they need to create certain um, products of choices and, and uh, these organizations need to become the choice architects for the people. Uh, And and by saying so, I mean that these organizations should actually help people choose the right instrument for them. Uh, It it should be an organic way of selection. It should be a selection that, that can be leveraged for a long time. And it should be a selection that falls within the customer's zone of comfort. Then only can the customers express true trust and loyalty among the service providers. So I think these are some nuanced ways in which um, the relationship between the new service providers and customers can be sustained uh, and can be made stronger with every passing day. So I guess that would be the contribution. Help them understand what these instruments are all about. Uh, engage in uh, making them more literate. Engage in making them more, you know. Uh, clear about and and um, uh, in trying to remove that anxiety uh, regarding financial instruments um, should be the, the best way to go.
0: Definitely, ma'am. Uh, we completely agree that financial inclusion and financial literacy is one of the need of the hour and with the changing pandemic situation when everything is online, it's completely on the financial sector hmm. to make aware the consumers about the ongoing situation and how they can move ahead. Yeah. so thank you so much for uh, being so insightful and being so specific and we really knew and we get, got a lot of details that we're not aware about thank so you. we'd request you to share all of those uh, papers with us and we would love to take a read and Absolutely. if possible we'll keep this channel of communication open so that we can have a collaboration with you in future for
1: sure, sure I would love to do that and I see a very smart and intelligent and very you know uh, uh, exciting group here in front of me uh, that is ambitious, that wants to do something and I really like the feeling that you give to me as team as consultant. Uh, so good luck to you, uh, all of you here. Uh, keep uh, these uh, good activities going on. Uh, I will share my works with you and uh, if possible, please read them. If you can see similar instances happening around you, make note, uh, be observant. Uh, learn yourself and and we can try to do something together in order that the world also knows what amazing examples we have from India to, to present globally. Hmm?
0: Thank you so Definitely. much for inviting me today. All of you. Thank you so much for joining us and giving us such insight to session. I'm very much, please. Definitely have. On behalf of all the concert members, thank you so much for joining us, ma'am. Thank you.